Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Matt Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome, my friends. We got a really fun show today. Our guest is Drew Dixon, founder of Albert Bridge Capital and CIO of Alpha Europe Funds. We talk a lot about global investing on the show and wanted to chat with Drew, given his historical focus on European markets. For the 30 years leading into the GFC, both the US and Europe were like 20 baggers, roughly had the same returns. And since then, well, we all know the story. US has returned like 15% a year or something, while Europe has been only about 8 we spend a lot of time on whether this trend will continue or reverse in the future. We also talk about the impact former guest and Nobel laureate Richard Thaler had on his investment philosophy, the importance of shedding our biases to generate alpha. We don't mention Tesla until almost the end of the episode, so we come up with his valuation and much, much more. This episode is sponsored by our friends at YCharts. A typical day in the life of a financial advisor calls for back-to-back client meetings, juggling portfolio management, and the consistent desire to improve client relationships. YCharts report and proposal tools could be the missing piece to help you effectively handle these time-consuming tasks. Now more than ever, clients want to hear from their advisors, and with user-friendly templates at your disposal, generating impactful client reports can be easily integrated into your everyday routine helping you free up time and focus on what matters most, enhancing client interactions and growing AUM. Need to make a clear head-to-head comparison between a client's existing portfolio and your proposed one? Want a seamless way to educate your client and present market trends with minimal effort? Join thousands of users who rely on YCharts to easily answer those questions and much more by leveraging personalized proposal reports to truly showcase your value add. Click the link in the show notes to learn what others are saying about YCharts' comprehensive suite of reporting and proposal generation tools. Get 20% off your initial YCharts professional subscription when you start your free YCharts trial. Click the link in the show notes or tell them Meb sent you for new customers only. Please enjoy this episode, Drew Dixon. Drew, welcome to the show. Meb, it's great to be here. Where do we find you today? You find me in sunny Naples, Florida. You're not originally a Florida man, right? You got kind of roots all over the place. I'm an Indiana boy originally. Went to Purdue, moved down to Atlanta, Georgia, lived there for several years, back up to Chicago uh, for business school, and then I've been all over, and then moved to London, England in 1999, and was there for 20 plus years, and now I'm back at the behest of my wife, broadly, and loving it. You had a tie-in to a former podcast alumni, too, Professor Thaler. Where did you guys cross paths? Dick was one part of the real, I mean, the biggest reason why I wanted to go back to business school. I actually worked a lot after college. I was working for six or seven years and had a fascination with, this is, I mean, I'm dating myself, but this is going back to the 80s, right? And in the 90s. And I remember the article in Fortune magazine about this upstart heretical economist called Richard Thaler at Cornell, talking about these things that Danny Kahneman and Amos Tversky were talking about. And 
and uh, maybe the market's not as efficient as we think. But at the same time, though, I have a great respect for the rigor of uh, Eugene Fama. And when uh, Thaler was convinced by Eugene Fama to come to Chicago, which is a great story in and of itself. I mean, he, Fama's, I mean, people give him a lot of shtick for being so ivory tower, but he's not. He's out there trying to poke holes in the theory all day long, too. And when he saw the work that Dick was doing, He's like, we got to bring him here. We need to have this debate at the University of Chicago. This needs to be the hotbed of the behavioral versus efficient debate. And he went to Merton Miller, who's even further to the right from Fama, and Nobel Prize winner as well, famously said, well, Gene, I'll let the next generation make their own mistakes. <laughs> Go ahead and hire him. And so Gene brought Richard there. Dick calls me his almost PhD, which is sort of a backhanded compliment. Not, not that smart, but smart enough to pretend. I was already leaning a lot toward the behavioral explanations for why markets work the way they do. And after spending a lot of time with Thaler, that became cemented. And this was during the tech bubble. This is back in 98, 99. So it was particularly fun. And I got, and Dick and I got to do some work together. And we stayed close after I, after I graduated. He likes to golf. He likes to drink wine. And, um, he likes to come over to the UK. So when he would do that and we might hop on the train and go up to St. Andrews or Carnoustie and play some golf. And uh, we kind of kept that up for many years. And yeah, he's definitely been a great mentor. And he's also introduced me to some wonderful people. He had had a comment and I'm going to probably get it wrong, but it's something along the lines of he's like, you know, the conclusion on a lot of this is not that everyone is so stupid but rather that, you know, a lot of these decisions are actually like kind of hard, you know, and our brains aren't really set up or the, the computer above our neck and shoulders isn't quite equipped for the programming decisions that come down our path every day. And, and markets are not, right? No, exactly. And that's when you get these windows, perhaps if behavioral stuff is correct, that's where you get these windows to try to take advantage of that. But it's difficult. Even economists says, hey, even though I know exactly what the mistakes are we make, I can't prevent myself from making them myself. It's difficult. I got a laundry list of them. I love to look at it. I think there was like an old Montier. And we'll see if we can throw it in the show notes. But it was like a you know, a little class test where you go through and it's easy to see how easy it is to get caught up and swept into to some of the decisions. And you look back on it and you're like, oh, I totally have you know all these various biases yeah, it'll be interesting in the not too distant future if you have like a little AI assistant, like a little, you know, angel on your shoulder that's kind of be like, you know what, like the classic one, like the judge who hasn't eaten all day is like harsher sentencing than is like, hey, you know, it's like you need a Snickers. It's like that ad, right? It's like, hey, you're going to make this trade. Here's this like behavioral thing you got to think about. I mean, to me, that's where long-term success comes in our industry. Earlier in my career, all I wanted to do was find behavioral mistakes the market was making. Hey, the market's not paying attention to this because they're suffering from ambiguity aversion or they're suffering from a confirmation bias or some behavioral bias that's making them underreact to changes in a business model. Let's look for all that stuff. And we do that. We love that. But in, in the spirit of sort of Charlie Ellis's loser's game kind of mentality, if this business is as much about avoiding the big losers as it is about finding the big winners, that means you got to sort yourself out. Can you create a process which you're as deep biased as you can be, but recognizing that you never really are? And so we do a few things at Albert Bridge. 
Um, I do a few things personally that hopefully open yourself up to the disconfirming information, make it easier to see when it shows up. My view is if we are lucky or good enough or a combination of both to get 60 or 65% right, we're doing great. And if a concentrated portfolio, we're not super diversified. We hopefully are more idiosyncratic than most. And over time, if you can set up a structure where you're getting the, you know, two out of three, if you get two out of three right, you're going to do well in this business. But that means you got to get one out of three wrong. Look at your portfolio. Which of these, of your 20 stocks, which of the six or seven that are going to blow you up are going to blow you up and be looking for it? Write a short thesis for the things you want to buy so that you're looking for the disconfirming information when it shows up. That's no fun. Nobody wants to do that. The disconfirming evidence. Come on, man. That's a great exercise. And you don't hear that many people that actually go through that. We have long, short routes, which helps. But I like nothing more than knowing the company well enough. And if I'm talking to one of our investors or a buddy that's running a hedge fund and I try to give the short case for a company that I really like, and if at the end of that, they're like, are you sure you don't want to be short that? That sounds terrible. If I can get to that level of understanding of the other side of the trade, then I've kind of starting to solve those Kahneman problems, even though he says you can't do it. You just open yourself up and have a culture where it's okay to be wrong, especially with the analysts you hire on your team. Like, hey, we're not in this business to be risk arbs getting everything right. We're in this business to find upside that exceeds the risk we're taking, but there's going to be risk. There needs to be risk. Has that ever happened to you where you're you know, studying either a long and like, all right, I'm going to do the short thesis or vice versa. You're like, I'm, I'm short this puppy. I hate it. And then you do you know, the long side argument. You're like, oh, wait, I just uncovered something. I'm on the wrong side of this trade. Yes, that's happened at least a half dozen times. I mean, I've, I've had a reasonably long career but I've gone from short to long or long to short, sometimes in the space of a few months, sometimes in the space of a day, when just the information that's presented to you is completely different than whatever side you were on, but also in line with what your, what your sell case was if you were long or your buy case was if you were short. You got to be out there willing to make mistakes and try to document how you will lose money if you do ahead of time so that if those things show up, you can manage it. The analogy I use, I overuse it, especially with British investors who don't know what I'm talking about, but I like using baseball analogies. One of my favorites is that, and apologies for those hearing this podcast if they've heard me mention this one before, but I love that Hank Aaron is second or third all time grounding into double plays. History of Major League Baseball. And that's a risk he could mitigate if he weren't swinging for the fences. But then we don't get 755 home runs. Do you have any that stick out? As, do you like looking back on it where you remember, you're like, oh, man, I remember studying this particular stock or investment and flipping my position. You had one on Twitter, I remember, where you were talking about Apple, where you were, I think it was the original Steve Jobs presentation, where you watched it and you're like, okay, hold on. That's a good one. I'm glad you remembered it better than I did, man. But uh... I love digging through everyone's Twitter history. There's a lot of uh, good starting points. Back when the iPhone was released, there was anticipation by the market ahead of time and the stock had already gotten a bit juicy. And here we are, we're in Nokia land, right? We're saying, oh, this is the 40% market share. There's no way these guys at Apple are going to do anything. Let's get short Apple. The stock was 
expensive-ish at the time, not compared to where it is now, but we had a, a thesis that there was a bit too much hype and and then they did the presentation. And halfway through the presentation, I we called up our broker and covered all of our short and got long. But we even did that poorly. I mean, we yeah, it's, we were smart by covering it and buying it. But at the time, we're like, oh, the market size is what the iPod is. Let's how big are iPods and how many how many iPhones will replace the iPods? What number do you get? Okay, here's our number for earnings next year, the year after. And so we held it probably for a year. We didn't help. We didn't. We didn't hold it forever, unfortunately. Oh, you piker, man. That's now, what, a $2, $3 trillion company uh, to rub it in a little bit. So were you always an equity guy? You know, you mentioned uh, London 1999. Was the bubble as crazy over there? Do you remember? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I was covering tech stocks for Fidelity Investments, and it was the heyday. I remember this is, I mean, I'm really dating myself again, but Everything was just over the top in 98, 99, including the broker conferences. And you go to Chase H&Q's conference or Quidditch Sweets' conference out in in Scottsdale and you'd have Aerosmith playing or you'd have um, the CEOs flying in helicopters. And we had a lot of access at Fidelity, which was great. So I got to spend time with Larry Ellison or Michael Dell or Tom Siebel during all this period. And we had... Similar froth in Europe. You change your name to something.com and the stock went crazy. Uh, and it was a very similar period around the world. Walk us forward. You started right before GFC. Was this always equity focused, long, short? Where in the world do you focus? What's kind of your interest? And then some other Fidelity alumni and I started to run some money externally for what was then the man group, now part of GLG. And then in 08, we started um, Alpha Europe and a long, short focused, concentrated fund focused primarily on Europe. And I was, you know, I'd been there at that, by that point, been there eight or nine years already. And then we were bought by Prella Weinberg, New York based firm. They took us over and we rebranded the firm's name and the fund's name. No change to the office or the, anything, but. Just rebranding. But one thing we did is made the long book investable by itself. So investors could choose. You want the long short fund, you want the long only fund. And the long only fund is what a lot of the U.S. In institutions really gravitated toward. As I say, who does anyone ever choose the long short? Well, they <laughs> used to. They used anymore. to before, before 2011, <laughs> they sure did. Maybe that'll change again one day now. Who knows? Well, I don't know, man. It's like looking at the charts of A, short selling funds, and B, Short sales is a percentage of market cap or whatever you want to message. It's like both are like all time trending lows to zero. I don't know how much further they can go. And then you see stuff like Chanos. He didn't retire, but like shutting down some fun. All the indicators you kind of see when, um, but, I, you know, I would have said that in the last couple of years too. I told Jim this, you know, after he made his announcement, this feels like a Julian Robertson moment in 99 when he decides to get out of the business. he have been proven proven wrong for so long by being short tech stocks or not owning them. It's like, that's it, I'm done. And here you go, Jim's kind of calling it. They lose, it, you know, and you know, it's tough when you, you have investors and they flee, given what his mandate was. And I'm very impressed by Jim's work over, over many years. And, and he's incredibly well-respected by every one of us. 
one of the things you always hear from commentators when they're talking about long short, they always say one of the benefits of long versus short is you can make two, three, five hundred percent in longs and shorts. You can only make us a hundred percent. And Jim was like, actually, that's not true. He's like, as a short declines due to way the margin works, is you can actually, you know, double, triple down on it as it goes down. Now, your exposure may or may not change and you may that may or may not be a good idea but the premise that you can only make 100% is false which is one of those interesting like just wall street maxims you hear all the time you can only make 100% on short sale well that's actually not true that's not true yeah it's though there's not only leverage in the way you put the positions on but also you might be running with in a 200 250% gross exposure so you've got leverage on top of that as well but you know broadly it is true you're not going to have a 50 bagger on the short side and especially you and I have both seen this over the last few years people will look at Trying to justify their current views they have for particular companies, they will always cite the biggest winners of all time as the proxy for, hey, look, well, look what happened to Amazon. Look what happened to Apple. And if that happens here, as if and we're picking two of the most successful companies in the history of capitalism, as if that's something that's going to be repeatable by everyone else that you're invested in. And that's pretty silly. Where do we stand today? You kind of maintained a focus on... Europe, or where does your lens sort of take you around the world? Yep, maintain the focus on Europe. It's not something I, if I had in 2018 and said, hey, I'm going to move to Florida and invest in European companies, my investors would have said, what? But if there's one positive to the whole COVID experience is that people are like, actually, maybe you can pull that off. And so no pushback at all. In fact, it, in some ways, I think it could be argued that it's a little bit better to do things the way I'm doing it here, a little bit more thinking time in the afternoons. Talk to us a little bit about European stocks. Going back to 2008, nine. there's been a disturbance in the force where the U.S., and particularly the U.S. mega cap, has just kind of steamrolled kind of everything in the world. And I actually had an email in my inbox this morning from our good friends at the Luthold Group, a big quanti podcast alum that's been on a bunch, and they have a chart, it only goes back to 92, but it's the annual spread between equal weight and cap weight S&P. And before last year, the two worst year ever for equal weight were 98 and 99. And then now 2023 was the second worst year ever. And it's in the headlines, right? The mag seven and everything else. But Europe seems to be not catching up in the wrong word, but moving in the right direction, I guess. I saw a tweet that you'd sent out the other day, which was similar to some things that I've noticed in this sort of this outperformance the U.S. has had over Europe, over other places, is a relatively recent phenomenon. It's 10, 12, 14 years old. Before that, we didn't have that. It was all, all kind of the same performance. And I've done a little bit of work. And certainly, if you start on December 31st of 1979, and you buy the S&P 500, or you buy the MSCI Europe local currency index, edge out the dollar is. Through the end of 2009, December 31st, the annualized returns of each index were precisely the same, 11.5%. They were the same. Um, and it makes sense. These are multinational companies selling similar products in similar regions to similar customers, and then things changed. And part of that 
definitely has to do with the fact that we had this clustering of wonderful companies in Silicon Valley that took over the world business models. Part of that's that. And in fact, I think the first, you know, from 2011 to 16 or 17, a lot of that outperformance by the growthy techie companies was completely warranted. I mean, they're just killing it, just taking over. Fundamentals are improving. I've done a few posts, whether it's talking about Apple or Netflix or Amazon, about how well their stocks have done, how we didn't own them, unfortunately. But it wasn't about buying a meme stock and just hoping for the best. It was about it was about buying companies that were going to crush earnings way more than even the most bullish of all analysts could have imagined. The last post I did on Netflix, when looked at it, it's like, well, it wasn't about anything but where earnings were going to go and what were earnings expectations at that time by the consensus for the year out or for two years out. What are they now? And the the increase had been like 5,700% in terms of what those earnings expectations were. And the stock, no surprises, is up about 5,700%. And then what we started having in 2019, and certainly post-COVID, was this introduction, which we can talk about, and I still don't know the answer, of, I mean, I'm going to argue a, a social media sort of frenzied atmosphere, whether it's from Robin Hood or Reddit, but this instant information, which is quickly digested in trends and then machines start following it, and you get just an incredible amount of flow into into certain names. Some make sense. Some make no sense at all. We saw the meme stock craze, the AMCs and the GameStops and the like, and the lesions of apes or whatever you want to call them that believe what they're doing is right and a good thing. And you just get incredible mispricing. And for a stock picker, you look for mispricing, right? And but it's not supposed to last very long. You know, maybe it lasts for a day, a week, six months, maybe even a year, but not like consistently, almost like a new plateau. I wonder now, and of course I would because I'm focused on Europe, but now that we've had 12, 13 years of US outperformance, pretty much versus everyone. You wonder if a lot of it is comfort. Oh, I want to buy the U.S. because look, look how much the S&Ps worked. It's been such a great decision to be invested in the U.S., not in Europe. Hold on, guys. Now, hold on. Okay, you got the tech companies, but we have some too over there. We have ASML. Um, we have ARM Holdings, although they're listed here. But no, we don't have the tech companies. They're you know 7% of our index or 26% in the U.S. But for every Mondelez, there's a Nestle. For every Airbus, there's a Boeing. For Every Southwest, there's a Ryanair. There's just as good business models in Europe as there are here. Good, great management teams, intelligent R&D groups. I mean, this very American notion of the superiority of U.S. businesses or the U.S. investing climate or our, our risk-taking, it's just completely false. And we have great companies in Europe. Look at the luxury goods businesses. I mean, we do better there than they do here. When people start to talk about the American exceptionalism, I go, okay, let's assume your argument is true. I say, what do you think the historical valuation premium then should be on U.S. stocks versus foreign? Um, because right now there's a huge one. And people kind of hem and haw and they come up with a number, I don't know, 10, 20, 50 percent or whatever. And I say, well, because the historical valuation premium is zero. The long-term valuation numbers for the U.S. and ex-U.S. 
it's to the right of the decimal, or it might even be like if the long-term PE ratio is 18 in the US, it's like 18 and a half, you know, or the last 40 years, it's closer to probably 21 and 22, but it's, it's negligible. It's nothing. So from that standpoint, you start to look at the lens of, okay, what was now a permanent plateau is now a time where this is now going to exist forever and the all of history has changed and competition is not going to knock this down. The old Bezos, right? Your margin's my opportunity, but the rest of the world likes to make money too. And I joke, I was talking with somebody the other day who was talking about tech stocks and they say, Bab, you know, the rest of the world doesn't have tech stocks. I go, by the way, do you know that there's semiconductors in South Korea that have crushed NVIDIA stock price performance companies? And there's other companies around the world that it's just a very strange, we're preaching the choir here, but along those lines, it just doesn't really hold water historically. Now, I would have said this last year and the year before and the year before as well. I don't know what the time horizon is. Is it six months? Is it 10 years? But eventually everything has to trade where the fundamentals go. And so in order to benefit from that, you have to have a process which recognizes that. And you have to have investors who recognize that's your process and that's what they want. I can't think of a single time in history where that has not been true eventually. And I like to point to certain markets that, I mean, from the behavioral standpoint, people have just been absolutely schizophrenic, crazy Mr. Market, you know, sort of concept. Like, look at China. China had a long-term PE ratio when you got starting pre-GFC on that sort of 2007-8 period, it was 60 and then it's on occasion, it goes down to the single digits and then it rips right back up and it just goes back down. And we're now at that point where it's back in the single digits and everyone hates it. I saw yesterday, Global X was closing like a dozen Chinese funds, ETFs, which again, is, is like one of these indications that all happened, the sentiment on the same side. But it just seems like, you know, we love to extrapolate the current situation forever. And Japan, which I'm heading to next week is my favorite example, certainly from the 1980s, but nothing lasts forever. At least it hasn't yet. Maybe the AI overlords will make US stocks exceptional forever, but at least in the couple hundred years we have of markets, it's never been the case. How long does it take for the market to say, oh, she's GameStop, that was crazy, let's sell it. It didn't happen overnight. There are arguments that there are some stocks out there where you haven't had that correction yet. Uh, one in particular, which we might end up discussing. And I think even at the level of companies that are not as sexy or interesting, a lot of the value things, it's even more interesting. I mean, I did a, a quick look last year, just looking at this growth versus value thing in the US, in Europe, comparing the two. And as you might have expected, growth stocks are killing value stocks in the US since 2012, 13 like a nice little respite last year and sorry, 22 where things flipped, but now you know, it's still been crazy. And I wanted to compare that to the value versus growth phenomenon in Europe and then compare the growth in the Europe, growth stocks, growth stocks in the US. And what I did not expect is that growth stocks in Europe went to the same multiple on average as growth stocks in the US, 35 times. Used to be on 24, now they're on 35 times. We don't have as many of them. I mean, ASML is great. EUV is incredible. I think Arm Holdings is much more integral than anyone realizes as well. We have the big SAPs of the world and things like that, but nothing like we have in Silicon Valley. But 
we're in a tiny part of the index. So, of course, the U.S. is going to outperform when tech rips because it's a quarter of the index. And, of course, growth will outperform value as it did. And so people start throwing, discarding the value ideas. They're not sexy enough. To, oh, I don't want to touch that. Same thing happened in Europe. But the fact that growth stocks for in both markets went to the same level was interesting. And then value, which underperformed the U.S., was, I guess, expected. At least it's explainable. Value in Europe was even worse. So in other words, U.S. value has actually beaten European value during this period when U.S. value struggled. European value stocks are as cheap as you like. And some of them are actually very good companies. It's great management teams. They're just in the business. Don't capture the eyeballs. I have hedge fund manager buddies in, in London who run purportedly European-focused funds that have half their book in U.S. names because that's what's worked. I talk to investors, try to convince them to take a little bit of money out of the U.S. and maybe sneak it over to Europe. And to their credit, like if I made that decision four years ago, I'd be out of a job or two years ago. U.S. has just crushed everybody, but it feels so flow-driven to me. And this is where people like Michael Green, who I had disagreements with, but he's got some good points about the impact of flows. And, and it's just so flow-led. And you see that certainly in the short term around quarters and earnings releases, try to take advantage of it, overreactions, underreactions. But it can last, especially as you have this trend toward passive investing, money flowing into those things, into ETFs, out of active funds. The tail starts wagging the dog a bit. Fundamentals are going to ultimately matter, but you've got to make sure you've got your balance sheets right. You've got to do your work on the risk. But I think the setup is wonderful in terms of what we're looking at and the things we're mine. What rocks should we be uncovering, whether it's countries, whether it's individual stocks in companies, any areas, sectors you think are particularly fruitful? I find that I want to focus on sectors where there's more dispersion of returns within the sector. Winners and losers in industrials and technology, media, healthcare, equipment, consumer, not so much in real estate or banks or utilities, which all... Um, will have a very highly correlated return profile. So that means we focus on the stock-picking sectors. And that's always been our shtick since 2008 and uh, since we launched Alpha Europe. We don't, I mean, you asked about, you know, is there certain countries that are interesting or not? And we don't really pay much attention to what the country exposures look like to us. A lot of our names are multinational, selling all over the world. doesn't matter where they're headquartered. But is it only Europe or do you guys, is your mandate anywhere? It's only Europe. I could go anywhere, but we don't. And by Europe, I mean developed Europe. We don't do the emerging stuff. We don't do Romania or Greece even. Depending on the year, Greece can be developed or emerging. It depends. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that just becomes very much emerging markety kind of trading. And that's not our style. It's, it's developed Europe. The ideas are, I'm going to have a value tilt. I suppose, well, not a deep value, sort of buy the hairiest, ugliest things you can. But I always want to make sure there is some hairy, ugly stuff in the portfolio. And if we get those things right, there's just incredible risk reward. But broadly for us, and this is somewhere I think we're very different than a lot of folks, a lot of my good friends who want to buy great companies, hold on to them. Guy Spear, Chris Bloomstrand. We don't. We want to know where are we versus the street over the next two or three years. That's our whole story. Is this company going to beat numbers? Is this company going to beat numbers? That doesn't mean we have a two-year holding period. It could. But 
if we see that business improving during our tenure, we can have it in the book for five or six years. So you just always have to have the view that two years out, the consensus investor is going to be surprised by the fundamentals of the business. And ideally, Meb, we have this behavioral kicker. It's not just about buying a, owning a company that beats expectations, but owning a company that beats expectations where the market is for some reason biased against seeing what you think is obvious. And that's so when you look at the ideas that we have, especially the bigger ones in the book, in every case, it's something where the market is suffering from some some behavioral thing that's saying, I can't own this. What are the normal reasons on the laundry list? There's a lot of them, but what do you kind of consistently see? The Mac daddy of all these behavioral biases is confirmation bias. You know, when people, when companies start to turn around, start to show things which are improving or better than they thought, everyone had a view before that it was a bad business or a bad management team and they built their reputations or careers on that. They don't want to see disconfirming information, so they will underreact. I think that's one of the things that causes momentum in markets. So stock doesn't immediately price adjust to where it should be. It's going to take time, which is why momentum works. And as uh, we march forward, as we march toward that two and three year time horizon, we see the company start to beat numbers. And we also see Mr. Market start to change its mind. Famously for us, uh, that was Fiat in 2014 when Marchioni comes out. Sergio Marchioni, that now passed away, but head of the group, just embarked on this campaign of creating shareholder value. It was just wonderful. They listed their trucks business. They then listed Ferrari. They then turned, they closed their Chrysler deal and ended up just getting rid of everything except for the Jeeps and the Rams and the muscle cars and turned it into a profit machine. The all in market cap of Fiat. In 2006 or seven, when John Elkan made Sergio Marchione the CEO of Fiat, was five or six billion. And by the time he passed away in 2018, adding it all up, it was over 60 billion. And this is for a company that no one would say is a high quality compound. This is just a business that the market got completely wrong because people didn't want to see that. If they, you know, they wanted other more sexy companies to sort of push. This is something about car companies are drawn to. There is. I'm part of this experience. So, um, but part of it also is I think it's a fascinating industry, which yeah, then leads us to discussions about, I think, everyone's favorite company to talk about in the, in the sector. We'll hop over to Tesla eventually. But if I was a betting man, which I am, and you had asked me the overrunner of this episode, at what point Tesla comes up, I think it would have been over. It was like way later in the episode. Than- we did good. We did well man, by, by not, not going there. We'll come back to we'll come back to Elon and, and crew. But okay, so that's sort of the framework. I assume you don't own that anymore. What's kind of looks good to y'all today? Is there anything in particular? I would assume it's pretty fertile ground out there. Yeah, I think it is. In some cases we own businesses which are not necessarily value. We just think they're gonna beat numbers. The market doesn't want to digest it. We like evolution in Sweden. Um, we've written about that. It's on no one's value list, but it looks, it's an interesting business. You have management buying stock. They price their options high enough that they really are incentivized to get it up. Fully disclosed that we do own it. And we just disclosed that in our letter, uh, which our inaugural investor letter, which we just sent out. But then on the other side, and we'll have more of this in the portfolio. It's just things which are people aren't paying attention to yet or we think will one day. Um, recently, we've been doing a lot of work on Trayton. Trayton is the trucks business of Volkswagen. The trucks business of Volkswagen has brands like Man or Scania. They own Navistar. And there's other businesses like them. Volvo 
Volvo trucks. Volvo doesn't make cars. Spinoffs, that's an old Joel Greenblatt sort of opportunity that creates a lot of behavioral setups. If we look at sort of the Volkswagen effectively copying Marchionne and copying Fiat, spinning off their trucks business, spinning off the luxury brands business, you see them doing new things. They're emulating a company that was focused on shareholder value. And this is a real sea change for Volkswagen. So it's interesting. But part of these spins is that you've got this trucks business, Trayton, which no one's really paying much attention to yet, a couple of years old, uh, similar business model, similar earnings growth, similar prospects as the Volvos and the Daimlers and the Packards and CMHIs of the world, trading at half the multiple because it's got a 10% free flow. And Volkswagen owns 90% of it. And Volkswagen just wants to have control. Like XOR has control of CNHI, and they could take it down to 50%. Uh, they could take it lower with the dual share class structure and keep their control. And the fact that the management team on their recent call have indicated that, you know, watch this space, there might be some changes there. That's all we need to see, because that's the kind of thing that the market doesn't want to see now. It's for some ambiguity aversion. We don't know what's going to happen. It's start for some confirmation bias. Oh, no, it's part of the old Volkswagen. We don't want that. Okay, great. This is the setup we saw at Fiat in 2014. So we like looking at things like that and doing that kind of work. With the U.S. stock market near peak valuations, is it time to look elsewhere? The Cambria Emerging Shareholder Yield ETF, ticker symbol EYLD, focuses on high cash distribution companies located in emerging markets. EYLD's process goes beyond focusing on just dividends alone to include buybacks and debt paydown, a trio collectively known as shareholder yield. The result is a portfolio of companies that rank highly on shareholder yield and offer strong free cash flow characteristics. Learn more about the Cambria Emerging Shareholder Yield ETF by visiting cambriafunds.com slash EYLD. Again, that's cambriafunds.com slash EYLD. Cambria funds are distributed by Alps Distributors, Inc. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of capital. To determine if this fund is an appropriate investment for you, carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risk factors, charges, and expense before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's full or summary prospectus, which may be obtained by calling 855-383-4636, ETF info, or visiting our website at www.cambriafunds.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing or sending money. International investments may involve risk of capital loss not associated with domestic investing. Companies can be paying out more than they can support and may reduce their dividends or stop paying dividends at any time. Well, we can go two ways from here. We can either talk about any other names in Europe you're particularly enamored with, or we can talk about your favorite buddy. And I don't even know where he's located these days. Texas sometimes. If you're looking at Mercedes and Peugeot, now Stellantis, uh, and BMW and the European auto sector, you can't not pay attention to what Tesla's doing. So that was the beginning of it for me. And also seeing how much reverence there was between the Volkswagen and Tesla, they're impressed. And there's a lot of things that Tesla have done over there and around the world, which have been impressing the entire industry. A lot of things which haven't as well. But with that, um, and it's just been such a story, the growth, particularly of the share price, but also what they've been able to achieve fundamentally, to me, is very impressive. Going back to your like 07 Steve Jobs presentation, Elon's not quite as polished of a presenter. Uh, I remember watching the Cybertruck unveiling. And when they actually unveiled it, I thought that the shell that like they rolled out the Cybertruck, I thought that was fake. I thought they were going to like lift that off and there'd be like a pickup truck underneath. And I'm like, wait, this can't be the actual truck. And then they tried to like the 
Unbreakable Glass, famously, that was breakable. Anyway, so not quite Steve Jobs. He is and he isn't, Meb. I mean, he has incredible reach and he has a similar sort of halo, if you will, between his shareholders and himself, if not stronger. And he's not an idiot. A lot of people like to say he is or a crook. I've mentioned this before. People have such different views about this man that I try to steer clear of that debate because you can't really get anywhere with that. You can't. It's hard to learn from somebody where you might be wrong. It's hard to teach um, if all you're doing is battling about this man's personal character. Although some of my close friends in the industry have a very negative view of his personal character. I'm not speaking out of turn, but Chris Bloomstrand, with whom you've spoken, Jim Chambers, with whom you've spoken, they're not big fans. And I try not to go there. I try to focus more on the economic reality of automaking and the likelihood of expanding that business into other lines. I have to say I was a bit thrown off last week when I saw that Elon was going to push his board to top him back up to a 25% stake in the company which was kind of right, uh, something that Jim or Chris might have expected. I thought that was overdoing it. Elon, as you all know, as everyone knows, sold a bunch of shares um, to arguably finance his Twitter purchase. But, you know, he got some prices in the 300s. I think the average price of what he sold was at 275 bucks. We're down at 205 or 210 now. And he's telling his board, if you don't give me that 25% stake, I might take all the good stuff out, do it somewhere else. The AI, the robots, the dojo. Very threatening comments. I don't know if I've ever seen anything quite like that before. I hadn't. That's really pushing it. And when you do the math and you look at, you know, it's very easy on Bloomberg to go through and see how many stock sales he made, how much, what he owns, how many options he has left to exercise. What he's effectively asking for is almost precisely the same amount of stock he sold. About 140 million shares, effectively, the way it works out. And what do you do if you're the board? That's the bigger question. What do you do? I mean, if Tesla lost Elon Musk, that's it. Game's over. Share price falls in half at least. The whole halos are gone. So you almost have to acquiesce. But that's a big chunk of concession to make to keep this guy around. And you'd think he'd have enough incentive already, given how much of a stake he already has. So that was a bit of a surprise to me. That's not why I'm short Tesla, but that certainly added fuel to the fire. So why should someone be short today or said differently, not be long? And is there a price which you would be long going back to our earlier part of the discussion? To me, it makes perfect sense. But when I mention it on Twitter or in our blog, I get lambasted by the uh, the faithful. But I don't think that the car business itself is really worth that much. It's just the robo-taxi? It's the what? <laughs> what they did was incredible. The Model Y is incredible. How on earth someone can come up with a car and sell more than anyone else in the world? I think they were ahead of Corolla for a few quarters. What the Tesla investors, I think, mistaken. I could be wrong. I've tried to go through and believe me, I've tried to find where can I be wrong on this thing? What needs to happen for me to be wrong? But people say, oh, they're going to sell 20 million cars by 2030. Or maybe they revise that down to 15 or 10 by now. There's no way they'll do either of those numbers. You don't sell that many cars just because you hope that's what happens. You need, I mean, automaking is a tough business. It's tough. The two most successful in the world started in 1937 to 38. Coincidentally, Volkswagen and Toyota both started then. 
And after world wars and all sorts of crises, these two have fought their way up to owning 10 or 12% market share globally in 80, 90 years. That's how far they've gotten. And they're not idiots. Toyota's production system basically changed the whole world of engineering. These guys have come up with great things. These are not idiots. Everyone at Tesla wants to think that everyone else is an idiot, except for the folks that got jobs at Tesla. It's just not true. If it were an industry that was prone to sort of first mover or winner take all, then Toyota would have been the monopolist 15 years ago or longer. But you and I and everyone else that buys cars have a million reasons why we buy cars. Utility, the aesthetic of the car, how much it costs. There's a million things that go into the mix of why we buy a car. And some of us want EV, some of us don't. As you mix all this in, you realize that Tesla doesn't have the models. It has one that sells. Volkswagen has, across its groups, over 90 different models, different brands. Uh, and they have refreshes of those models every few years to get people to come back in. We aren't getting the same refreshes. We aren't getting the same models. We get the Cybertruck four years late. And I would argue, and that's, this is more of a personal perspective, I think it's going to have trouble selling. They'll sell them to the fanboys here in year one. They're not going to sell 250000 of those a year. I think them not doing a traditional pickup truck was such a whiff. Oh, it's a complete whiff. The Rivian's a better truck. Uh, and it's, uh, the, I mean, my, I'm a Midwest boy and live down south. I have a truck. Everyone knows has, has a truck. No one's buying a cyber truck. <laughs> I mean, yes, some folks in California will and someone that wants to drive that thing. It's kind of a novelty. Does it all hinge on the mass market Redwood? It does hinge on the mass market, which if we had this conversation a year ago, and I did with many, that was something expected to be news on in the first, second quarter last year. So in terms of modeling what the business looks like going forward, Meb, and I have been, I think, fairly objective and also fairly positive on the likelihood of EVs becoming a bigger mix of total sales. It's nowhere close to what the fanboys expect in terms of the you know, ICEs disappearing and it's all driving EVs. And we've seen evidence of that now where, firstly, at all the traditional manufacturers, they're just not getting the demand that people thought. People don't necessarily want an EV because it's going to show up, particularly in some climates and some regions. But Tesla's seeing the same thing. Starting a, over a year ago, they had to start discounting. People don't want to buy them anymore. And the only ones that sell are the why anyway. And so this whole notion that the that Tesla investors had that Tesla can make as many cars as they want at whatever price and and generate whatever margins they want. It just in 2023, we've all learned that was completely wrong. They've had to lower prices and lower prices again and lower prices again in nearly every region geographically. Consequently, their profit margins, which people thought were sustainable at forever at 21 levels, turned out to be because we're in the middle of a chip shortage and they had the stuff and so they could sell whatever product they wanted to for whatever price. And it turns out that they're now less profitable than three or four other automakers. Delantis is doing 400 basis points, better margins than they are. Not the kind of thing that a Tesla shareholder wants to pay attention to. And so what Elon is very good at is shifting their focus on something else. And that has been, in 23, it's been AI, dojo, robots, and let's try to come up with some other sort of undefinable upside that can be the thing that lowers folks in or keeps them around. And now, again, unlike Chris or 
Jim, I do think that this guy's worth money. I, th- I do think there should be a value to the Musk option. Well, I mean, what on earth? This, it's incredible what he's done. The market share he's taken, it's a success story. I mean, and meanwhile, he's landing rockets on the moon and bringing them back. And who knows what will come up with next? Let's see. Stock is, let's call it 200 and change. Market cap at 650. Higher. You got to go diluted. Okay. So down. A lot, uh, about, a lot of diluted shares. Down about 50% from the peak-ish. Where's Drew Buyer? It's going to depend on the day, man. I mean, I think that the auto business is maybe worth 50 bucks, 75 bucks a share. But I don't think Tesla's worth that little because I do think there's value to the Musk option. Energy, AI, Tesla bots. How do you define that? Do you pay $50 billion more in market cap because you want to own Elon Musk? You pay $5 billion? Do you pay $75 billion for something that's not profitable yet, but it's Elon Musk running it, so it must work? And the mistake, I believe, and I've been, I've tried to be nice about this. I've tried to help people to sort of see clearly without being offensive. But everyone wants to believe that, hey, look what Apple did. That's what Tesla's going to do. And they give, I mean, Apple was on its knees. It had to borrow $150 million from Microsoft in 1998. Uh, Amazon was on its knees. It fell 95% from the tech bubble to 2003 before it changed its business model, pivoted, and figured that uh, AWS might be a nice profit machine. But just because we're, we're citing these epically wonderful, game-changing, world-dominating businesses and assuming that's going to happen to Tesla, well, that's what the market's kind of done. So, and you can do the math on what market shares are for Tesla and how many cars are going to sell and how much that might grow or not grow and slap earnings multiples on them even in the out year, you're not getting to a very, very big number in terms of what the car business is worth, which means if that car business is worth 50 or even $100 billion, which it's not in my view, you're paying $600 billion for everything else that might happen. And that's a, that's a lot of call option value. And as we have had things happen to us, delays in FSD or launches of the Cybertruck or no announcements about this Model 2 that everyone's been waiting on, which, by the way, it's not a sure thing, right? It's success, nor is it's profit. It's not going to generate the same kind of profits that people had hoped it would. We're seeing what's happened to gross margins and operating margins of the Tesla since they had to cut prices to sell these cars. I mean, the fascinating thing to me, we had huge earnings downgrades. from I mean, Last year at this time, I had temporarily become constructive on Tesla, because it had sold off for all the wrong reasons. He just bought Twitter. Everyone's negative about him doing that. You get the stock pressure down. It gets down to 100 bucks a share. And I actually wrote for the FT, hey, the fraud's gone, guys. I might think it's worth less in many years, but it's not worth this month. This, 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 it's gone down to here, um, and it, the fraud's gone. And now it's popped back up. And now it's coming back off. It's got a massive market cap again. People are paying five, $600 billion for the Musk option. And he's threatening to leave, take his toys and go home. I mean, I think it was Elon yesterday where he said something about, I stand by my prediction that if Tesla executes extremely well over the next five years, that the long-term value could exceed Apple and Saudi Aramco. Saudi Aramco. <laughs> 
which puts it, you know, the the ten trillion club, like the the first that'd be the first stock to hit ten trillion. Which um, no, the the. I mean, if the stock had a fifty or seventy-five billion dollar market cap, and he was saying those things, those grandiose things, you say, "Oh, you know what? God, this Elon—he's so smart. Let's bid this thing up a bit and own the call option." People have effectively already given Tesla the market cap as if it's a foregone conclusion that they will be a market-dominating business without any evidence of them doing so. In fact, we've had contrary evidence over the last fifteen months. Missing earnings, missing revenues, growth has slowed. The Model 2 should have been out a year ago. Cybertruck came out finally, but even Musk himself said, oh, by the way, this is not going to be that profitable. We're going to need some time to get it up to the production level that generates the profit that is required from it. I don't think they're going to get there. And to me, it's the weird thing, Meb, is it's obvious. And this is not insights that everyone else can have. We see that Prices are being cut. We see margins are falling. We see earnings expectations are falling. If you had told me on December 31st of 2022, hey, this stuff's going to happen fundamentally, I would have said, well, maybe it is worth 100 bucks." But the stock was up over 100% in the midst of all this bad news because people started shifting their focus, as Elon does very well. Oh, no, it's an AI company. Oh, okay. Never mind that they're arguably behind Waymo and three other groups in terms of the development of FSD, Level 5 Autonomous Driving, which is a whole other debate. Never mind that there might not be the demand for these things that people think there will be. It's hard for me to imagine one of them have an AV, but maybe. And we have had evidence not only at traditional manufacturers, but at Tesla itself, that the demand for EVs is not as robust as many had hoped. And that, sure, places like Norway buy a ton of them, but that's because everywhere doesn't have a multi-billion dollar sovereign wealth fund that pulls oil out of the ground that can be used to subsidize EV purchases like Norway does. And that's exactly what's happened there. You get a break on VAT, you get a break, you don't have to pay parking, you don't have any road tax, uh, and you get $10,000-ish to, to buy the thing. Okay, I'll have, a, I'll have an EV. But that's not the way the world's going to work, and we're seeing that. People don't want it. They'll eventually get there. I was mentioning earlier, I get to us up to 50% by 2030. I'll probably start revising that back a bit because even I have been disappointed by EV growth. It's going to be tough to see fundamental news, which justifies the share price. And it's possible that here in 24, we have a, a year with very low earnings growth, if growth at all. If they have to keep cutting prices, they won't grow earnings. But even revenue growth is falling. Um, so what are you going to pay for that? And in my view, you can't get there. So you're a buyer at 50? <laughs> uh, no, I, no, I think... Uh, that's what the auto business itself might be worth. Now, I do think there's going to be value in maybe something that Elon hasn't even talked about yet. He is that kind of guy. I'd be careful not to be short him. But right now, the, the assumptions are that almost for this wonderful, perfect world and the people buying the stock are, they are true believers. It's very religious. And if those are the ones making the price, I've tried to 
caution them as nicely as I can. Guys, have a look at this. Or at least tell yourself, what would you need to see? I've said this to the bears, sorry, to the bulls. Tell yourself what you would need to see to change your mind. What kind of fundamental development? Maybe the robo-taxis don't take off, or maybe the Maybe that'll introduce a model two, or maybe margins go to here, or maybe sales go to whatever it is, just predefine that. So if it does happen, you can exit. And those that say, oh, no, I'm just going to own it forever. That, as long as there's a contingent of folks that are still speaking like that, well, the stock's got downside. All right. 50 bucks. You heard it here. You never know with these sort of things. I always think about like him like mer- buying SpaceX or Starlink, and like all of a sudden it's this conglomerate of like, Really incredible assets. Yeah. Well, that's this is the Musk option. He can put it all together. What's been your most memorable investment, good, bad, in between over the years? I'm sure there's been plenty. Back in 2008, Meb, things were pretty crazy, as you'll remember. We had just launched our long short fund in April that year. Every one of my friends and their brother was short the Volkswagen Ordinary shares because it looks like Porsche was trying to take it over, um, the Peach family. And there was a huge disconnect between the ORDs and the PREFs. The ORDs are the voting shares. That's what you needed to own to own control of the business. The PREFs are the more liquid shares. They traded at a discount because they didn't have voting control. Well, the ORDs started trading at an incredible premium to the PREFs. I mean, 100% for the same company. And it became something that the hedge funds wanted to short. Oh, because this made no sense. It didn't make any sense. But we try to be the the hedge fund that doesn't copy what everyone else is doing. And we didn't see any edge, nothing novel about our work. We didn't get short the orts. We just watched. And we told ourselves, if, they, if it starts breaking, we see some, some signs that fundamentally this is going to um, correct itself. It'd be great to be short these orts along the press and watch them collapse. But we're going to wait. And we waited. And sure enough, something happened in the second quarter, I think it was. And you start to see signs that this this might break. So we started getting short a little bit. And then there was another announcement, and it start, started behaving for us. The ORDs started falling. Okay, let's get short the ORDs. Let's do it. So we'll be like everyone else, but we felt like we were smarter about it. And on the Friday, I think this was in September, we got to our full size. I think it was a 4 or 5% short in Volkswagen ORD, ORDs. I've got it written down. I think the stock price was at 200 some euros a share. That Sunday night, I think it was Ferdinand Peach, but some representative of the family puts out a press release saying uh, that uh, in the spirit of full disclosure, they wanted to let people know they bought a bunch of call options, which gave them a certain amount of the share capital control of the float. And then if you added the state of Lower Saxony, to that there was no float left and we wanted to let you this know so that you shorts have time to exit your positions that was the actual press release and we had just got full size that friday and i called my trader and i've never met i've never done a market order in my life i'm always a limit order guy i'm going to pay to 1660 you can have some discretion here blah 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 let's do a vwap let's do this let's try to find it dark I told my trader, I would like you to buy whatever that number was for us, 5%. I want you to buy everything, market on open. I don't care what you pay. And let's say the stock closed at 220. Again, I'm making up the numbers. That morning, 
it first ticked at 350. So the stock I sold the Friday before at 219, a big position, I buy back at 350 the next morning, the next business morning, you know, stick a knife in my heart. The stock proceeded to march up to over a thousand over the next two days. It became the most valuable company in the world as the squeeze was on. It put some hedge funds out of business. Um, we were actually able to trade it a bit on the way up. So we ended up coming out of 2008, making a little bit of money on both sides of BW. But that day was the most intense day, actually two days, I, uh, I've experienced in capital markets and watching. This is a big company become an even bigger company. And uh, yeah, it had a trillion dollar market cap. This was back when no one had a trillion dollar market cap. This was. Was this the biggest, like, on market cap? This is like the big daddy of short squeezes, right? Yes. And then it was a little bit more of a European story than an American story. But I mean, remember watching this from afar and just thinking, oh my goodness, this is astonishing. Yeah, no, it was. It was. Um, and a lot of U.S. hedge funds were short VW orders. Certainly the European ones were. Um, and we thought we were being smart not doing it. And of course, Murphy's Law or Sod's Law, as they would say in the U.K., the day after we get our short on, the press release comes out. Yeah, I mean, an incredible time. That's up there with Mount Rushmore of timing. I remember Jim O'Shaughnessy talking about he had a bunch of puts and sold them all the day before the day 87 before. crash. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so those two might win the timing award. Um, we've had a couple that are, are that are up there too. Drew, this has been a blast. Where do people find your writings, your musings? What's the best place to keep track of what's on your brain? I'll occasionally put out blog posts on our, um, on our website. It's albertridgecapital.com. Um, Drew's Views, it's called. Drew, it's been a uh, grand tour. Thank you so much for joining us today. Matt, it's been great. I appreciate the time and look forward to the next chat. Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at themebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere good podcasts are found. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.